welcome to a brand new episode of Seize the Moment podcast. And today we have two very special guests. We have Bob Hutchins and Jenny Black. And Bob Hutchins is a, an accomplished and dynamic marketing executive with a 20-year comprehensive background in marketing in both corporate and small to medium environments across various industries. He's an expert in digital marketing, consumer psychology, and organizational marketing direction. Jenny Black is a licensed marriage and family therapist who specializes in media trauma, the ways that media impacts our mental health, creativity, and productivity. And their newest book is called Our Digital Soul, Collective Anxiety, Media Trauma, and a Path Toward Recovery. Welcome both. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Thanks for, for having, having us. Absolutely. And so as we usually do, we start off with a quote from the book. So in the book, Jenny and Bob write, the purpose in changing our relationship with our phones is to change our relationship to our lives. If we don't have boundaries with our phone, we won't have boundaries in our relationships. If we can't focus while on our digital platforms, we will struggle to be productive in our work on and off the screens. If we use our free time scrolling, clicking and being entertained, we will miss out on the deep satisfaction that we would have from hobbies. If we do not mark the beginning and the ends of our work, we will miss out on a pure gift every human being deserves a good night's sleep. As the old saying goes, how you do anything is how you do everything. The same is true of our digital life. We didn't always have a relationship with our phones. Not so long ago, having a cell phone was optional. Back then, the decision even to even have one wasn't easy. Some worried about giving up their freedom and felt that being available at all times was the antithesis of life. Who would want to be reached 24-7? Others felt that they could justify the cost because their job or position was important enough to have a cell phone. Though early models were large and bulky, they were viewed as status symbols and burdens. You needed extra income to afford one and had to be ready for constant availability. It removed an autonomy the average person was not ready to relinquish. Then one day, everything changed. So I love that. Um, and that's pretty much the relationship that I've had with my phone. I'm kind of glued to this thing all the time. Like I would say pretty much 24-7 mm. with the exception of... Even sometimes when I'm sleeping, I'll wake up in the middle of the night and I'll look at my phone. So um, so let's start with Bob. Bob, um, essentially, when you're thinking about kind of how cell phones have changed and essentially how now the internet is a constant part of our lives, we see the good, right? I mean, we're all obviously connected with each other in ways that has never been possible before. But how has it changed, especially from the context of the book, how has it changed for the bad? And kind of what are what are sort of, sort of um, some of the negatives that have, uh, that have kind of come up from that and how have they impacted us in our relationships? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I love the quote that you chose. Uh, how we do anything is how we do everything. It's a basic principle of life and starting to jump into the deep end of philosophy for where you guys like to swim. So it, it, that simple statement is um, something that I try to remember. And I tell my kids all the time is if, you know, make your bed, clean your room, um, because it's a direct reflection of your mind and your life and how you organize things. Um, not always, but how we do anything is how we do everything. And so, you know, uh, one of the things that, that Jenny and I talk about and we put in context, imagine if you were to live in a world where uh, in the real world, where you walked outside, you walked down the street and for you guys, someone came up to you and said, oh, you look so awesome today. That podcast was great. And every 30 seconds, people were coming up to you and saying that. And they were saying, oh, oh, I hated that. Oh, that was the worst. You, Good job. You're amazing. You would say that's kind of dysfunctional and probably very unhealthy to live in a world like that. But uh, we've entered a space where we've gotten used to that type 
of world. And um, like the great media philosopher Marshall McLuhan said is, mm. we shape our technology and then our technology shapes us. Uh, and so I would just say that that's the simple answer to that is um, when our phones used to be in our houses, uh, we had connection with other people, but we had to go to a place to connect to it. It was separate from us in a sense. Now we talk about our phone being a relationship, uh, as you said in that quote, and it is our strongest, greatest relationship. What kind of anxiety do we feel when we see the battery level at 1%? Mm -hmm. How do we feel when we get out on the street or get in our cars and we realize that we've left our phone at home? It's our greatest relationship. It's the first thing we look at when we open our eyes in the morning. So in that sense, our technology has shaped us. So I'll let Jenny speak into this too. I know you have a strong opinion about it. <laughs> um, well, I would also say it's it. You can ask anyone who's in a relationship with you, right? Your your mm -hmm. kids, your parents, your business partner. Um, that they would your relationship with them. They probably have a lot to say about how your relationship with your phone impacts your relationship with them. Like one of um, one of my son's friends would say, he, he was like, "Your family is the best family to be with." when you're with them, but when you're trying to find any of you, it's impossible. <laughs> you're the worst <laughs> family because none of us answer our phones or check our texts if we're all together. So mm -hmm. people have a different experience of you based on your relationship with your phone, right? Like there's, um, you could be with someone who's like, anytime I want them, I can get them. But when I'm with them, they're always on their phone, right? Mm -hmm. Because the priority is the person that's in the virtual space. But yeah. the thing and that comes, go ahead. Well, I was going to ask, so because obviously you're a clinician, is that what you're seeing in the consulting room too? That pretty much the a lot of the problems that are coming up between, uh, let's say, in relationships or between couples and marriages, a lot of it has 100%. to do with the digital space, right? A hundred percent. I mean, the, the lack of intimacy right now is a huge deal. And people often feel more intimate with, you know, the people they're regularly interacting with on social media than they do with the person who's next to them in bed. And that is... I, I mean, I believe it's the source of a tremendous amount of um, relationship problems right now. And, you know, that's not just with couples. It's with friend groups, too. Um, I hear from a lot of students that we get together with my friends and none of us are actually together. Right. And we feel and every student tells me, I wish I could I would give up my phone if all my friends would give up their phones. But I'm afraid oh. that's the only way that I get to connect with them. But there is something else Bob said that I thought. That I was going to jump off of. Um, well, ask another question. We'll, we'll come up. Well, you know, actually, I find that very relatable. You know, when I'm with my friends, yeah, I mean, we do hang out, we do chat, we do laugh and have a great time as far as that goes. But I, I do notice that we, we don't have as many meaningful sort of long form conversations that we used to. Uh, it would just sort of, you know, maybe talk a little bit. Somebody goes back to their phone or just, I don't know, the, the meaning has kind of been lost, right? As far as that goes. I, I find that even just probably the only time I do get these long form conversations are in podcasts. I knew you were going to say that. Yeah, <laughs> like, right? Yeah. right? Honestly, honestly yeah. Right. When you really get to talk about how you feel and, and things it's of true. that nature. My sister yeah. has a podcast and I'm on every other episode. And that's the most, like, because we do that, <laughs> it keeps our relationship together, right? Like we have that hour oh. every other week, every other week, so... Oh, that's cool. Oh, what, what's the podcast called? Called Mom Cult Podcast. It's about moms. Its tagline is uh, Real Moms, Real Talk, Real Tired. 
Wow. <laughs> cool. And Bob, you were going to interject? I was simply going to say um, the point that, that we all ha- have made is that the most engagement and one of the reasons I believe podcasts are so popular is because you get to hear people talking in a long form mm-hmm. format, uninterrupted by anything else, just human to human. Um, we've lost and we long for that. But but uh, the point I was going to make is what is the thing that we do or we should be doing before we start this podcast? We put our phones down, we put on uh, focus mode, we take off all the notifications. Uh, I took my my Apple watch off, um, all of that to say, we prioritize this time together. And I think that's really interesting why, when we say, okay, what are, what is the positive effects of that? The outcome is an hour long, a two hour long, three hour long, how long the conversation is that everybody wants to listen to and engage in because we're not um, being distracted by our technology. Yeah. Yeah. And so go there. Yep. And then so going back to Jenny, I mean, so from a clinical standpoint, again, when couples do fight over this or just, you know, anybody, any friendships or whatever, any relationship, when people do fight over it, what is it that normally comes up in terms of like the essence of the problem? Is it mainly like jealousy and wondering like, hey, is this um, digital platform more important than I am or is yeah, it something else? It, it's the, it, it is referred to as the other, you know, the other woman or the other right. man, or it's that's, and it, it really is. It's because it's not just one person on the other side. I call I call it life porn because <laughs> it's this you are seeing all of these things and you're even experiencing these other things from from you know other people that you probably have been attracted to or were attracted to at one point in time or maybe had a relationship with in the past and you're having all of these like oh you're so great oh your family so blah 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 you're getting all of this positive feedback about um, who you are, what you post, and you're also seeing their best things, right? Their best pictures, mm-hmm. their best moments. And you contrast that to your reality, right? Which is a messy kitchen, an angry spouse, uh, financial issues, just adulting, right? Mm-hmm. It's not it's not glamorous. It's not fun. And you don't get that kind of feedback, right? Mm-hmm. Your Your kids aren't saying like, oh, mom, you're the very best ever. Thanks for doing that craft with us. Like there, but you, when you get online, you're getting that kind of feedback. And so it really is, um, it's life porn. It's like, okay, this, this is where I get gratified. This is where I get my feedback. And then when I turn it off, I used to explain it as it, like in the wizard of Oz, when you had like the, the world that was in color and then the world that was in black and white, Mm -hmm. that in my days, when I was the most sort of in the realm of, you know, um, Instagram, Facebook, whatever, it was like, that's where my life was in technicolor right? That's where everything was as it should be. (laughs) And then I would go away and it was like, I've got a sick kid or somebody just wet the bed or, you know, it was just this like, it it made my real life feel like it was that black and white, um, overwhelming kind of, um, it never could deliver me, deliver to me. And we weren't talking about dopamine at this time, but it couldn't deliver me the dopamine, right? Those that, um, that just a few minutes on the phone could, and my, my kids used to say to me, you know, mom, you're on the phone all the time. And we have a quote in the book that says like, how many kids have said, and when I ask them, what do you want your parents to know about phones? Um, they will say, can you please tell our parents to get off their phones and be with us? Like wow. number one thing I hear from kids. So it's this big myth, right? That it's the kids that are always on their screens and it's the 
teenagers that are always lost. They're lost in that world, but that's not what we're hearing from them. Yeah. Yeah. And I can really relate to that because there are times when I look at Instagram or just any kind of social media platform that I'm on and I would think like, wow, man, like this is my life. My life is actually really great. But then, you know, you're going through the day to day and it's kind of like pretty mundane. Like I'm assuming every, you know, all of you guys kind of experienced that, but it's like, you can even sort of trick yourself into thinking like your life is way more glamorous than it is. And it's sort of interesting how social media works that way. So on the one hand, it can be a great thing because obviously mm -hmm. it's a hell of an ego boost, you know, it makes you feel like, oh, wow, like I'm doing so much better than maybe other people or maybe than I thought I was. But then on the other hand, also when other people are struggling, it might even make it hard to relate to them to say like, well, that's your life. Look at how great my life is. It's also social proofing, right? I mean, when you get a whole bunch of people on your account, you know, liking yeah, and, yeah. and saying how great you are, it shows that to other people too, right? And then uh, that can help in all sorts of ways, right? In terms of relationships as well, like having amazing Instagram stories, you know, as far as dating goes, like they'll be like, oh, this person has really interesting things going on, right? And and it's weird because you almost feel like you can't be out of this world, right? Like it, it, if you chose not to participate, definitely, yes, your, your life will uh, benefit, right? You'll actually have real interactions with real people and real substance. But then uh, you almost feel like because everyone else is on it, you can't not participate because then you feel like you're missing out on something like that yeah. FOMO that's mentioned in yeah, the book. For sure. Uh, so how can people sort of deal with that? Because I know there, there are a lot of benefits to not necessarily participate. Wait, Alan, before we go into that, so I, I love that question, but can we just pause and go back a little sure. bit? So especially I want to actually go back to Bob. And so uh, Bob, I would ask like, why do you call it media trauma? Because that's such a loaded term, right? And it's obviously really intense and sort of emotionally laden. So why do you use the term trauma in this context? Well, yeah, that, that's a great question. Um, trauma is real. The word trauma is real popular, uh, even more so since we started writing this book two and a half years ago. It, it, it is. And it's a real thing. Um, but when people think of trauma, uh, well, first, let's define media trauma. We define it as the experience through our media and personal devices that hinder or harm our capacity to be mentally whole. So that's the definition. So when we think of trauma, we think of uh, major traumas like violence or war or accidents or sexual abuse. Um, and those are the big T's that everyone thinks about. Uh, the trauma and PTSD really was discovered and started to see right after World War I, where they called it shell shock, uh, when mm -hmm. the men coming back were not able to function in societies because of not just the memories, but what trauma does is it physiologically changes us so that we react in ways physiologically and reflexively that sometimes we don't have control over. So, uh, so when we think of those things, we think of the big things. However, there's more subtle traumas that come from living in a hyper-mediated environment where we're constantly in the presence of imagery and information like you said, that we can't seem to escape or control. Mm -hmm. So media trauma can be created by many things, such as uh, media violence, the obvious thing. Maybe it's a 14-year-old who, who happens to see an ISIS beheading, and it's so overwhelming to him. The only thing he knows how to do is to share it with his friends, and they watch it over and over to, to create some sort of, hey, I'm not alone in this, is, and, and is this as shocking to you as it's to me? And then you wonder why the kid has uncontrollable nightmares um, 
or it could be it could be pornography, it could be advertising, it could be news media, on and on it goes. But a constant barrage of of events, and we could we argue and we believe, and I think things are starting to show it. It's not just the negative violence that constant barrage, but it's also you know that serotonin and and the dopamine of constantly triggering over and over that good feeling little by little hundreds of times a day our brains aren't really designed to work that way this is the first time in human history that we've uh that we've had to experience that so so it so it's also all comes down to um this digital identity this form of self-estrangement uh, it's all been linked to depression and stress disorders and adolescents, young adults, and now I believe older adults as well. So that's the context uh, of trauma. And I'll just say this one thing, and I don't want to belabor the point, but there was a study done in 2014. You can go back and look it up. It was done right after the Boston Marathon bombing. Mm. And the study was about 2,700 people half of them were present at the event, the other half watched it on media. And the purpose of the study to see what levels of stress, anxiety, and trauma on the individuals um, over time uh, were the results on people's brains, their bodies, et cetera. And what they found, the people that were actually present had less effects than the people who repeatedly watched it on media online. Wow. And you, you ask, well, how is that? That's counterintuitive. And the reason is that when you're present in a stressful or a traumatic event, your body wants to react and then release those things that um, those events are producing. So for instance, at that event, if I was there, you were there, there's some, several ways that we would react. We might go run and hide under a table uh, a bomb goes off and afterwards we might call 911 immediately and, 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 ex and emotionally uh, give the 911 operator what is going on and how to, you know, send help. We might go run over and help a person who's injured and try to stop them from bleeding or comfort them. These are all natural reactions, the fight or flight, the run away, the, the whatever it may be. And we see this in other mammals. Uh, but for us, now let's go to the other people, the other half of that study. They see it from every different angle within minutes at the speed of light. They see it over and over on many different platforms and their brains are wanting to react physiologically. But what have we trained ourselves to do? We disconnect and go, oh, that's awful. Swipe. Oh, that's terrible. Swipe. And our bodies physiologically never get the opportunity to react to the things that our brains don't know the difference. And they go, this is a stressful event. This is shocking, whatever it may be. And then we just compound and compound and compound. Mm -hmm. And then we wonder why we're depressed, why we can't sleep, why we have anxiety, why we bark at our significant other, on and on it goes. So that's why we call it media trauma. Wow, that that makes a lot of sense, right? I mean, if you keep going to the next thing in terms of, oh, I want that dopamine hit, I'm scrolling through my newsfeed or, or what have you, you, you don't have enough time to actually feel the emotions that you may feel from one particular event. And then these things sort of become um, uh, repressed, so to speak, right? And never get dealt with. And then you, right. like you just said, you 
compound and compound and compound. And wow, that's that's insane. That is insane, right? That that we're essentially doing that to ourselves, right? Yeah, and it also kind of seems like, especially when you're in an event, like you can just not forget about it, but you can at least begin to move on. Like once the event is over, now you're maybe focusing on some other part of your life, hopefully. But when we're talking about the media, I mean, you can just go on your phone and relive it over and over again. That's right. That's the point is yeah. we're, the, we're the center of every every event. Go ahead, Jenny. Well, the I'm also sort of the softer and more daily things that people are experiencing is, you know, everybody's dealing with something like infertility or unemployment or um, a breakup. And when you are watching, and this is more of the genuine use of social media, when you're watching someone having their baby announcement right after somebody else is like showing this, like, I like, oh, I just got this new job. So that also that is actually extremely traumatic. When someone's just going through a hard thing in life and they're watching, right, everybody else, which of course isn't real, but watching everybody else have this like celebratory moment that if you're not going through a hard time in life, you don't think anything about that. Like, right. oh, they're getting married. Congratulations. Or we're excited about this. But to the person that's already going through the hard thing, that is, it's, it's another layer. Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't call that trauma to the same level, you know, that we're talking about the Boston Marathon bombing, but sure. it's trauma in terms of it keeps removing your resources from you that you need to get through the difficult situation that you're in. Mm -hmm. But the the reason when I came up with the term media trauma, I felt like, can I really call this trauma? Like it, it was, and the reason I, I didn't, everything that we've learned since then came after the word like the term came to my mind. So mm -hmm. what Bob and I are talking about wasn't in my mind when I said, oh, this is media trauma. Mm -hmm. What I was seeing was that every single person I knew had had PTSD symptoms. Mm -hmm. I was watching an entire culture and like, and we have in the book listed out the symptoms of PTSD. So I came at it completely backwards. I was like, wait, the, the, it wasn't like one out of five of these symptoms or whatever. Like every person was exhibiting them. I was like, what's happened to us? We Are we in a war right now? Like this is, why do we all have PTSD? And mm. when you go through those symptoms, they're normal ways that we describe being right now. And so it was actually backwards that I was like, oh my God, we're, we're actually being traumatized through our media. And I, it's not, it, it's really important to know that the three parts of it, one, it's not just what you're seeing. Like that's just, let's, let's take that as like one third of it. It's how we use the devices, how they're interacting in our life. It could be a really great thing that's happening, but if it's happening like this all the time, it will drive you crazy. Right. Mm -hmm. But the third, and what I believe is kind of the most significant thing is what's missing in our real life now, what it's taken from us. So it may not be any, it's no big deal at all. Right. To, um, walk into, um, with my kids, when they were in school, as soon as they'd walk out of class, they'd get on their phone. This was like in the days when people actually had boundaries to not look at their phones during class. So as soon as they walk out of class, look at their phone. As soon as they end school, look at their phone. Okay, who cares? What's the big deal? Mm -hmm. Well, the big deal is that we had no idea what that those that seconds, seconds matter to our brain to dissect, to digest and take in information. Oh, that's what my teacher meant by it. Oh, that's my friend. Oh, wait, what am I doing on Saturday? Oh, I've got to remember my spelling book. There are these little teeny tiny bits of time that we don't have any, we don't have access to anymore that help us in tremendous ways to organize our life and assimilate information. And that's just happening at, you know, 60 seconds. 
just 60 seconds that our brain might need to take something in all the way to gosh, well, what, what could our brain need or do with an hour and what starts happening to us physiologically, psychologically, emotionally, when we no longer have any room to um, engage in reality and what kinds of losses are we experiencing there? That's where I feel like the most consequences are coming from is the loss of time and reality, even more than what's happening to us online. Yeah. And even thinking about it again, clinically, and just from a perspective of just one's emotions or emotional presentation or picture. Um, so we've obviously talked about post-traumatic stress, uh, anxiety, depression, but I'm now also thinking about it just in terms of anger and resentment. Uh, so a couple of weeks ago, we had on the pie, well, he was a AI, AI uh, researcher slash pioneer, Rama Chalapa. And we talked about just AI in terms of digital platforms and how it kind of these algorithms feed us information that we not only just already potentially or possibly like accept, but also that we're pretty much fed in information that's in line with what we already believe. And a lot of it is pretty hostile and pretty aggressive. And it kind of feeds our, you know, I guess, for lack of a term, kind of more base impulses or instincts. Mm -hmm. And so in thinking about that, right, uh, we uh, so all of us, uh, Alan and I and Rama were discussing like, what can be done about it? Because if you're looking at a capitalistic model, and I mean, for better or worse, this is the system that we live in. These platforms are essentially cultivated and kind of maintained to make money. So they feed us information, essentially, that gets us to keep looking, right? So it's like, if I, uh, let's say I'm on Facebook and I'm getting a bunch of, uh, let's say stories about how, I don't know, Hillary Clinton is like the incarnation of the devil or whatever it is. I'm going to read those stories. Right. And then I'm going to get into groups that post kind of those types of stories or something like that. And so with Rama, the question was, well, okay, who's responsible for this now? Right. So if we live in the system, right. So if, if we live in the system where essentially the model says, well, look, you know, I mean, we're just doing what's, what makes us money. What do you know, what kind of funds are about bottom line. We're not really doing anything wrong. You people are responsible for not looking, right? So this is the question that we kind of always come up against because essentially in the way our, fundament, our fundamental kind of society works is that, yeah, you know, they're doing what's right or what's at least not wrong. And so who is then responsible for it? Because in a sense, not just again, anxiety, depression, but in terms of anger, polarization is at its highest, you know, its highest sort of peak. Um, you know, we're pretty much divided more so than we've ever been. And yet, you know, for whatever reason, again, these companies, they keep profiting, they keep getting views. So I'm actually going to ask Bob first, because obviously you're the one, you know, in terms of kind of working in terms of uh, like industries and understanding society structures, uh, corporations, essentially, right? Uh, how do we begin to hold some of these media kind of companies accountable? And is it even our job to do so? I think it's absolutely our job. Um, I, I would just agree with you 100%. We are the product. Uh, it first comes, you have to have an awareness. You have to step out and have a sense of metacognition to really observe what you're engaging in. What are you doing? Who's doing it to you? And what is the benefit you get? So for instance, attention is the product, right? You said that very well. Our time online is being monetized. Our lives and the most precious thing that we have in the whole world is our time. Most people would, would agree to that, is being stolen and sold to the highest bidder. That's the reality, right? It advertisers. So when you really understand that, I, I, I do this, ask this little question, uh, and I do this with students quite a bit, but anyone can 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 do this. But I, I ask that on your Instagram or your TikTok account, tell me the details of at least three posts over the last three days that you engaged in. So in other words, give me the details on at least three posts without looking at your phone over the last few days that you engaged in. Most people can't remember one 
or two. So the question is, of the many, many, many hours a day that you engage on those platforms, what did you get out of that? Okay. You could argue, well, some people have businesses and yeah, but most people, for the most part, you got nothing out of it. You got your time stolen for the most part. So the question to your point is who's responsible for that? I think there's many levels here. First of all, we're, we're responsible. Okay. But I do believe, as do many others in Silicon Valley, um, I study, if you'll follow the work of Tristan Harris at the Center mm -hmm. for you know, Ethical Technology, um, all of those things. And Cal Newport, whose book and you Cal have Newport. behind you, who's one of my favorites. Yeah, yes. deep work. Yeah. I mean, we got to the point as a society where we held the tobacco industry responsible for what many would argue is a person's free will and commerce and capitalism and choice to smoke cigarettes anytime that you wanted. Uh, and if you go back and look at the ads from 50, 60 years ago, you, you even see ads from cigarette companies with pictures of doctors saying, this is good for you, especially when you're pregnant and it makes for you to relax. So your baby grows well. Oh my God. Um, you can find those ads. I've posted them. They still mm -hmm. exist online. So, um, but then finally we go, no, there is evidence that this is harming people. It's killing people. It's giving cancer. You can still go buy a pack of cigarettes at the store. Anytime you want, you could still go outside and smoke. But as a society, we've said, and as a government and as industries, we've said, no, we can do better than that. We're going to protect our kids. We're going to protect people. Even though you still have the choice, we're going to put some guardrails and make it really difficult. You can't advertise this to kids. You can't advertise it on TV. On and on it goes. I think we're getting to the point where you know the Facebook files that came out uh, a year or two ago, um, the studies upon studies upon studies that are coming out, this is killing people. It's causing mental uh, health issues, suicides. Um, Jenny can can testify, you know, anecdotally in her own counseling practice. It's the number one problem that people come into. So I think as more of us push in healthy ways to say, we don't want to get rid of this technology. We don't want to live without it, but we can do much better. Um, we can integrate ethics. We can integrate morality. We can begin to put some guardrails that when we see a 14-year-old girl on YouTube going down a tunnel of how do I lose weight? How do I lose weight? How do I lose weight? Instead of the algorithm continuing to feed her more and more and more, um, can we not interject something that gives a more positive, that takes her down a maybe a more healthy road? I believe we have the ability to do that. So those are the things I think we have to hold these companies are responsible for. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Jenny, then from again, going back to a clinical perspective. So what are you seeing in your counseling room? Especially oh, in terms Yeah. So it's in terms of especially in terms of like specific diagnoses and uh what is kind of fostering them? Like something like let's oh say eating God. disorders, right? Like how would media and social media contribute to them? So so it's not it's it's we're now at the place where you can rarely find some of uh, specifically a female who doesn't have a eating disorder. So it, it's like, it's hard for me to explain to people that I started seeing clients before social media was 
in a reality in people's lives. And you had this variety of issues that would come into therapy and they would come with a specific issue. I'm in the middle of a divorce or I have an eating disorder. And they were an exception in their group of friends or their community. They were the person who was going through something hard, right? Mm -hmm. And that's why they came to therapy. And then overnight, every single kid had an eating disorder. Every single... um, every single adult was suffering from depression and anxiety. It was just like, wait. And and there was no, everybody needed to be in therapy. And it was like, what happened? So I was used to seeing my clients and you work when you, as a therapist, as you work with a client to basically create a treatment plan. So here's Mm -hmm. the presenting issue. And here are the things that we're going to create together and work on together for you to get through this um, thing. Mm -hmm. That's how therapy used to work. And so all of a sudden I was with clients being like, what's the presenting issue over and over again? I don't know. I don't know. I'm just not okay. Something's wrong with me. It's probably something from my childhood. I don't know (laughs) what somebody helped me. So I was working with a 13 year old girl who had um, been flagged for something that she wrote. So her school had flagged it and said, um, she can't come back to school until a mental health professional clears her for coming back for their own liability. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So she meets with me. And, um, first thing she says is, Hey, I just want you to know all of my friends have to do this too. And I was like, I know baby. So it's not even like, that's not a special thing anymore. Right. Mm. So I said, okay, what's wrong? Tell me what's wrong. What happened? She's like, everything, everything's wrong. I, I mean, the world's a terrible place. Um, everything's overwhelming. I, whatever, like, okay, did something happen to you? Please tell me, like, I need to know, I have to check off my list. Did something happen to you? Right. Was there some sort of abuse or whatever? And I don't, I was like, I don't know if you're going to tell me the truth or not, but I have to ask. And I mean, she just thought so hard and she's like, no, nothing Mm -hmm. happened to me. I know she's got a great family. Like I know she has all of the resources that back in the olden days, a kid didn't, I, I told her, I said, The reason everybody's reacting the way that they're reacting is because before phones came out, when kids started to do and say the things you were doing, we knew that a trauma had happened to them. And we're Mm -hmm. using that research to take care of kids now to go, hey, you're not okay. Something happened. And she looked at me and she said, you think our phones are traumatized? You think our phones are abusing us? And I said, I do. Do you think they are? And she was like, "Mm -hmm." Mm -hmm. and what, what we kind of unpacked together was that. She was probably 12 when she got her own phone, right? We've got to get the kid their own phone because who knows, they're at all these practices and we've got to find them somewhere or whatever. And that's where all their friends are connecting. Well, mm-hmm. the second you put a smartphone in someone's hand, no matter how old they are, right? You have now put them in charge of their life. She was getting texts from her friends who wanted to commit suicide, maybe at two o'clock in the morning. And she's 12, right? I couldn't handle that. I'm a therapist. I'm actually trained to handle those situations, right? Mm-hmm. I've worked a long, long, long time to be ready for those kinds of moments. And this little 13-year-old is just getting these texts or seeing these posts or these little snaps that her friends aren't okay or that they want to die. Two of her friends have been in psychiatric wards. Like, because you're not supposed... So talk about media trauma, right? She didn't watch a bombing. She didn't watch a beheading. This is just her normal reality with her friends. And she's on call. Of course she can't handle, like she can't handle that reality, right? 
So this is a normal experience for a teenage girl um, who has their own phone. And what I was realizing just through this work with her, it kind of was like all these pieces were coming together is that anytime any one of us steps into a virtual space, right? We have entered the world of infinite, mm. infinite problems, infinite traumas, infinite um, friendships, infinite research, infinite job possibilities, infinite um possible hookups, infinite, 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 right? Like that. We are finite. So it makes sense to me that the moment we enter that world, we're going to experience certain levels of stress and overwhelm. And like, because we're in the world of the infinite and we are finite beings. So my number, my number one thing for all of us is I I believe everyone should at least take 30 days um, outside of social media. I think we just have to reset our nervous systems to, to get out of that thing that we're in and to get our own consciousness back because there, there is no hope for us. There's no hope for, um, for us to even, we can't ask for, um, big tech to do something different if we don't have our consciousness to us. So my thing is basically get out of the world for as long as you need to get out of it until you have your own mind again, until you have your own thoughts again. And then you can start looking at it from a place of, wait, that's not okay. Or wow, that's really helpful. Or, Hey, maybe if we took this aspect from this platform and put it with this aspect of this platform, like, but you can't, which is why I love deep work so much. You can't think deeply when you're in that fight or flight trigger all the time. And the nature of our phones puts us in the fight or flight uh, mode all the time, which means we don't have the capacity to think deeply, to reason, to look for solutions. And, and I'll get off my soapbox. um, Everybody wants a person. Every kid, these teenagers, they don't want to go on YouTube and learn about eating disorders. They want their mom to pay attention to them. That's what they want. There's no three-year-old who's dying to get on their iPad. They want their dad to throw them up in the air. Mm -hmm. So this is not all of this going to the internet to solve all of our problems and get our emotional needs happened because humans were not available. So be a human who's available and this will eliminate a tremendous amount of the trauma that's happening online. Yeah. Yeah. And to go back to, did you want to? No, go uh, for it. Go. Yeah, so, and then to go back to Bob, right? So, um, you know, you related this to big tobacco. So now I'm wondering, especially in now in the context of what's happening with Elon Musk and Twitter, and the question is, well, you know, does Elon Musk really have the ability to silence people? I mean, it is a private corporation after all, et cetera, right? But if we're looking at it in terms of big tobacco and in terms of the harm that maybe not something like specifically like Twitter, but maybe other platforms are doing. So now, I mean, this is, and this might be a tough question, but it is a question that I think needs to be posed. How do we, or do we even involve the government in this now? Or is this something that we just try to figure out on our own? Because from the way you guys describe it is essentially that this is an addiction. If we have 13 year olds accessing social media, I think essentially what they're saying is that like, I can't get off of this. I can't just put my phone down and go outside and do whatever, right? It's not, it's not that simple, especially when everybody else is doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a bigger discussion and it's a controversial discussion. I get it. Whenever I, I even bring up the analogy of big tobacco and the government get involved, you know, of course, you're going to have certain people say, whoa, wait a minute, then who makes the decision what's good or bad, how much is too much. Um, But I think we're mature and intelligent enough to start having those conversations. Here's the problem. Um, You know, 
this book is not about whether social media is good or bad. It's not about how the internet has changed the world for worse or for the better. That's not what this book was written about. I really want people to understand and hear this. This is not about an anti-digital media or social media perspective. This is a pro-human book. So mm -hmm. all media is an extension of ourselves. So while what we're saying is what we have created has an error and a big bug in it, and we're starting to feel it. We need to acknowledge it. And we, however we choose to fix it, it's kind of like saying, uh, remember Volkswagen was putting out cars that had brake problem or Toyota had brake mm -hmm. problems that it was causing accidents, injuring and killing people. Well, the government got involved because it said, we can't have cars on the road that kill people. Right. How is that any different? How is it any different? When we're all plugged in using something that we know you could line up the therapist, you can line up the studies that say this is harming people. And we're going, no, no, we can't get involved. We can't, can't wait. How many kid girls have to be tortured? How many young boys have to commit suicide? How many adults, how many, I can't tell you guys. And I know you've probably experienced um, people, our age and our range, have boomer and older parents. And they said, the last four years, I've lost my mom or dad. I don't know who they are anymore. They spend hours and hours in front of whatever news platforms you want to call. Mm -hmm. and they've become angry. They've become cynical. They argue. They have, you know, they they're scared. You know, they're scared. They're terrified. They believe conspiracy theories. That's not harm. That's not hurting people. So I don't know what the answer is as far as getting the government involved, but I think we have to say, let's get back to being human beings. And as human beings, just like tobacco, just like faulty brakes, just like on and on it goes, are people being harmed, hurt, or killed as a result of it? And I think we're getting to that point. And that's what we're saying. We're saying we can do better. We don't want people to stop driving cars. We don't want to take away people's freedom from smoking if that's what they choose to do. But we have to acknowledge the harm that's taking place so that we can have cars that don't have brake problems. And it's wonderful. And we get to the point where we have autonomous driving vehicles. I can't wait for that day, but I don't want to get in. I don't want to get behind uh, that now. I don't want that on the street now, obviously. And we would never do that. So again, I always quote E.O. Wilson, you know, the biologist, and you've heard this quote, maybe you have or ha haven't. The problem with humanity is that we have paleolithic brains. He says paleolithic emotions. We have uh, we have institutions that are medieval, and then we have technology that is godlike. Mm -hmm. And so, when you try to mix paleolithic brains that haven't changed a whole lot in thousands of years as human beings with technology that is rapidly advancing, and try to say, "Oh, it's okay, we can keep up," we're fooling ourselves. Um, yeah. and it's well, it's definitely. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Mm -mm. No, go for it. Oh, thanks. Okay. So yeah, it's, it's definitely becoming very clear and apparent that it's incumbent upon, upon us to responsibly, uh, you know, cater our relationship to technology, to our phones, to social media. Right. And kind of going back to what you said uh, earlier, Jenny, about maybe taking 30 days, right. To uh, sort of reset your nervous system. Sober October. <laughs> Sober October, <laughs> right, if right. you will. Yeah. 
how do you so what you just kind of go cold turkey do you still use oh. your phone for uh, is there a yeah, way to have, baby stuff have, this so or? yeah no I, okay so um you'll have to stay tuned for more details so i have a podcast called lost and found lose the phone find the flow where i follow an artist for 30 days who has gotten rid of their smartphone wow and we're working with a um, company called gab they make phones for kids. It's supposed to be the safest phone on the market, but really it's just a phone that calls and texts. That's just how they market it right now. And mm. so we're, so he has swapped out his, so now he has his um, Gab phone and we're on week three of shooting the podcast. It's not out yet. Um, and basically we're walking people through the process of how to do it, kind of using him as an example. And it has been incredible. So the like the things you have to do to set up to like, let everybody know, you know, here's my new phone number, um, working on, th you know, sitting down and working on your laptop. Like he still has to do stuff on Instagram and YouTube that he chooses to do when he goes to his house and gets on his laptop. Right. Hmm. Um, but one of the things that he said that has just blown my mind, I was asking like, what's the difference between your relationship with your smartphone and your relationship with the Gab phone? And he said, oh, the Gab phone is my friend. I have a friend with me whenever I have that. And I said, how does that compare to your smartphone? And he said, the smartphone was just a black hole. No. I just went in. I didn't know where I was going or when I was going to get out or if I could get out. And he, he keeps saying, so he's on week three. He mm. keeps saying, so our idea was, what are you going to create during these 30 days? Like in the absence of the six, seven hours a day you were spending on your smartphone, you know, he's a musician. Like what kind of things are we going to be in the studio? Are you going to be writing music? And he's like, no, I'm just now, he keeps saying, I'm just now getting my life back. I'm trying to mm. figure out how to get my life back. Like what's a routine? Um, who am I going to be with today? Because our phones are telling us all the time what we're going to do and what we're going to be and how we're going to respond. And, um, but, um, I said, the crazy thing about saying that your phone is your friend is that for every single time his phone rings or beeps now, it's actually a person who's wanting to talk to him. Mm -hmm. It's literally, a. that's the thing. That's the purest thing that lies in the middle of our smartphone, right? That we have built this whole insane thing around, but the real sweet, pure, actual need that we have to be met that it can meet is that exact same thing that lies in a kid's phone. I just mm -hmm. want to call and text with people. I just want connection. I want people to know that they want to be with me and I want to be with them. And we had a real conversation. Right. So, um, so I'm making it it's stay tuned. You're going to, you're going to, and I think in February, we're going to start a challenge where we basically set it up so that anyone can engage in it. And you, you get to decide for yourself, what do you want to do with, with 30 days that life it's, that you just get your time and attention and energy just given back to you. It's the exact opposite of what Bob was saying. You can actually say, oh, I know exactly what I did with my day. I chose to do that with my day, or I got to see what life had for me. Right. And, you know, also thinking about this from a biochemical perspective. So I'm not necessarily sure if you would call this an addiction per se, but from what we do know about addiction is essentially with kind of the dopamine hits that your brain gets, uh, you kind of become a little bit more tolerant to them. So let's say if you're going away from a particular substance, whatever that may be, uh, let's say you've decided to quit or whatever, what happens is like the kind of everyday things that might normally bring you joy. So let's say, you know, Alan and I are having a conversation. Maybe I learned something from him. Like that wouldn't make me as happy anymore. So, uh, because 
because you know because my brain is now sort of adapted and it needs more needs more stimulus so do you guys i mean either jenny or bob do you know what that could look like especially from you know social media perspective where or like a phone perspective where let's say we're putting our phone down what happens in terms of the actual symptoms right like how do we then readjust to like quote unquote normal life and now feel joy from learning feel joy from again you know everyday conversations or is it that like you know things become kind of blah and if they do how long does it take if you guys would know to kind of readjust to that yeah, I would let Jenny respond to that, to the clinical perspective. That's her training. I would say too, though, to your point, um, <laughs> addiction is a is an interesting term, right? Because um, there's there's the DSM description, which all psychologists, psychi psychiatrists would say, you know, there's no such thing as media addiction to or internet addiction, right? As far as what they've written in there. However, I would argue that any type of uh, addiction recovery center specialist, anybody that you talk in that field, one of the things they say to addicts or to potentially people that question whether they're addicted or not, one of the determining factors is what is the first thing that you think about when you open your eyes in the morning from sleeping? What is the first thing you do? What is the first thing on your mind? For an addict, it's getting another hit. Um, for a drunk, it's I got to start drinking early. Um, I don't know about you guys, but most of the time it's I'm going to roll over and pick up my phone and I'm going to look yep, at it. Yeah, that's it. So you can take that for what it's worth. You can say it's not an addiction, but um, try, try putting your, try starting with not looking at your phone for an hour when you wake up in the morning. Just start there. Just start there. That's what I've, I've tried to do. And I've heard so many people say, it has been transformational in my life to not look at my phone for an hour or two hours in the morning when I wake up. Go make some coffee, go think, read, write, um, do whatever Just you need. Just lay to in bed. Just lay that's, in bed. That's one think. of the things that um, Jerome has said. He said he used to wake up and he would get on his, that's the artist, that he would get on his phone and just look at Instagram the first hour that he woke up. And he said, there's something about that that felt like I was doing something. And mm -hmm. he's like, now I like that. The other option was right. You've got to get out of bed and you've got to go do everything. And he's like, all of a sudden it occurred to me, I could just lay here for an hour. Mm -hmm. like, and that actually like that feels like wasting time. Yeah. That actually is good for your mental health. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Go ahead. Yo, so I, I so I love that you linked that to something like the concept of wasting time. So a lot of times when we're on our phones, right, for better or worse, we think what we're doing is meaningful. So like, let's say if you go on, you scroll through Twitter, or whatever, you know, you're reading the news. Uh, if let's say, uh, you know, you're kind of like commenting on something right now, you're building relationships. Um, let's say if you're, uh, let's say reading an article or whatever, or some tweet or whatever, now you're learning something, right? So how do we then disconnect that, that concept of having a meaningful life with, let's say the phone, right? And then saying to ourselves something like laying in bed the entire time is actually not a waste of time right because again it seems so counterintuitive because i'm on my phone yes i understand it's like this you know this piece of plastic or whatever but i'm doing meaningful things for my life on it right like how do we kind of see yeah. help people see that that's not exactly true i mean the reality is co cognitively you are just like you said right we're we're checking boxes mm -hmm. that that we think oh i've connected with someone because i have commented about something or mm -hmm. um 
when, or the biggest one is I know what's going on in my friends' lives because I saw their posts. And so we have this information in our minds that say, wait, I'm connected with my friend, but our body does not believe it. Our body does not have that felt experience. So that's when, when you start investing your time and energy into things in the real world, you might even think, well, that doesn't seem like it was a meaningful connection. Why does my body know that it was? Mm-hmm. Right. Mm. So it's sort of the opposite. It's like if you um, eat junk food, it tastes really good. Right. Junk food was made with things that made it seem like it tasted good. Well, the reason we have taste is because our body needs nutrition. We could Mm. all get IVs and get all the nutrition that we needed through IVs, but Mm. that's not how we're made. We're made so that what we eat tastes good because that's how we keep giving our body what it needs. Right. But then Mm. junk food's made. We would be better, right, for us to get an IV of nutrition than to eat junk food all the time. Mm-hmm. But our mouths would be like, nope, this is good. I want more of it. I want more of it. This is good. So that's exactly what's happening to us in virtual spaces. It's now been added these tastes and flavors that make us think that it's good for us, but it's hijacking something that was actually made. We know your body knows when something's good for you. If you laid in bed for one hour without checking your phone, at the end of that hour, you'd be like, I don't know what happened, but it was good. Like mm-hmm. you, your body would know every, every single group of kids. I ask what they would do with 24 hours without their phone, without any screen. All of them say, clean my room and sleep. <laughs> like the, that, those are the first two things that come to their mind, clean their room and sleep. So mm-hmm. there is a really specific um, pattern that I'm seeing. And that is at the very beginning, people are exhausted. They're so exhausted. They don't even have, it's, you don't have a lot of, um, there's a little bit of anxiety of like, okay, I need to check because I don't know that. And if like right past that, I mean, just maybe even a day into that is like, you just feel your body crashing, crashing, lots of sleep. Um, after that is a lot of overwhelming feelings, like feelings that have been shoved down um, and skipped over that are now being processed through your body. So it really does get worse before it gets better. And then after that comes this like, oh my gosh, I have things to do. I I need to get, I need to put the dishes away. I need to um, respond to that friend about plans on Friday. Things get real practical. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it take and it usually takes about three weeks to get to the point where you're like, wait, this is my life. I I always imagine it like when you see those the switching movies where somebody drops into somebody else's life, mm-hmm. like freaky Friday. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's what happens. You drop into your own life and you're like, wow, this place is a mess. <laughs> I should do something about it. Mm-hmm. Um, or, you know, I didn't realize I live right next to this walking trail. Why don't I go on that every day? So it mm-hmm. takes about three weeks before you wake up in your own consciousness again. And you realize, wait, I have a life that I could do something with. And, um, We'll we'll see what happens. Um, I would say too, that. just to, just to tag on to that, one other real practical way is um, we've we've really lost the ability to be bored. Um, yes, yeah, the, yeah, and boredom is an important piece of our cognitive ability to avoid cognitive load because boredom is the brain's and the body's way of solving problems subconsciously, right? So hmm. when I'm bored, I am. I am not, I'm not engaged physically, or I'm like not doing something. There's many different definitions of boredom. 
But it, here's one little trick to start. It's a tip. Next time you're picking up a coffee or you're in a line or you're waiting for someone to show up, look around and notice how uncomfortable people are just sitting and looking around and not doing anything. The, the, the gut reaction is pull out the phone and scroll, right? Mm -hmm. So you avoid that boredom. Try just going, I'm not going to pull out my phone for the next two minutes. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to be the only one here that's not scrolling. And it might feel odd or awkward, but allow yourself to get into that habit of going, oh, my, I'm having coffee with my friend and they go, uh, can I just check something real quick? What do you do? You immediately pull out your phone and you check mm -hmm. too. Don't do it. Just allow your body and your brain to just have those couple of minutes. Just start there. I realize what Jenny might be saying is radical for some people, but start to just notice and take control of your life and see what even that means to you and does to you and go, you begin to process things and you're like, think about problem solving and your brain, like Jenny said, can actually start to re-engage in the things that we've hijacked and we don't give our chance self this overwhelm and this exhaustion that we have. Right. So plus it, it feels amazing to be present, right? I mean, when you actually right. are fully in attention with someone or just in general, you actually feel good from it. There, there's an actual, it, it's not just theory. It's not like you know, what we're discussing here, if somebody's watching this or hearing this sort of thing for the first time, they're like, all right, well, yeah, it sounds good. Yes. Yeah, so I'm not, a, I'm not addicted. I'm not, you know, uh, constantly looking at my phone and needing the stimulation. Like in theory, it sounds good, but actually in practice, you just, you do actually feel better. Your, your relationships improve your, your ability to uh, access uh, uh, ment like your mental capital isn't uh, depleted, right? you you don't have uh, different sorts of fatigue, whether it's uh, decision fatigue or uh, personality fatigue and things like exactly. that when you're pulling at attention. Yeah. yeah. And then so and what essentially what I'm hearing from both of you is that fundamentally we need to reinterpret our beliefs about what our phones are actually doing for us and to us. So even though intuitively, at least now, I don't know how innate this is, but at least now we feel like, again, a lot of this stuff on the phone is meaningful. It actually isn't so much. The meaningful stuff is the boring stuff, the mundane stuff that we do. That's what's actually helping us in terms of mental health, in terms of our relationships, wherever we're going, you know, five, 10 years, whatever from now, that if anything, our phones are actually more of a distraction from that. That's so right. Yeah. And something I wanted to add to that in my own experience, I've noticed, uh, there was a time in my life where I was, uh, reading more just for fun, like just big autodidact, just loving to learn. And it, fe it felt great and all of that. And then I noticed that I would get into really not just looking at my phone, but just like these little distractions. Right. And then kind of like what you had with your students, uh, Bob, where, uh, you'd ask them, what do you remember from what these, like at least three meaningful posts or something like that? Actually, any of the things that even I thought were educational, I couldn't tell you what I remembered. Maybe, maybe a little bit, but my attention wasn't all there. Right. And uh, really coming to terms with, um, you know, the benefits of something like being bored or not necessarily needing to distract yourself, it kind of a, a sort of arrests your attention and almost calls you to, uh, take action and then try to really put your all of your focus into one particular thing at a time. And I find, yeah, boredom uh, incredibly useful. Yeah. I think it would be important to say at the end of this, well, first, let me give you an example of what you just said. I, I mentioned it in the book. I have a friend who turned to me not long ago 
and he's middle-aged in his fifties. And he said, um, we were talking and he said, Bob, do you have a, do you have a, can, can you read books? Do you have a problem um, paying attention? And I'm like, mm, I haven't noticed it. Why do you ask? He said, I used to love to read, but I find myself not being able to get through even a chapter. And I said, well, well, tell me more. And he said, um, I can't, I, I always feel like I, I need to respond to a notification on my computer or my phone. I, I have to check. I have to, it's like, I can't focus. I really, it, am I, am I going senile? And, I, and so what I wanted to say off of that is the good news. And it, and here's how we probably want to start going down this road at the end is the brain is very plastic and malleable. Mm-hmm. This is not a permanent thing. We have to all, you know, this is not a dystopian universe or vision that we're trying to say is you can change uh, and we all can change and we can get it back and we can heal and we can do better. Mm-hmm. So all of that to say what you're describing with the way you used to love and read, you can get that back, but um, we may have to jump over some hurdles and do some hard work with some of the things that seem kind of radical, like even the way you ask the question, like, whoa, what are you talking about giving up my phone for a few weeks? Like that's not even, you, people's eyes get real wide and go, I can't do that. I think it kind of proves the issue that we're talking about, right? Mm-hmm. Like I'm old enough to remember life without phone. I don't know if you guys are, I'm old mm-hmm. enough to remember. Sort of. <laughs> yeah, uh, it, it, it we functioned, we engaged. Um, and there's so many beautiful, great things about it now. Um, and that's been my career and I'm still a believer in technology, but I'm also, uh, a human driven and data informed, not data driven. So let, let's all try to go. What's the most human empathetic, emotionally intelligent thing to do in this moment? And I think if we can all kind of go back to that um, and start from that that viewpoint, I think we can we can engage in in let this be tools rather than what it has become. Yeah, and I think that that's such a beautiful endpoint. So, Alan, before we wrap up, final questions. Wait, we're done. Yeah, we're no. done. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, uh, Jenny and Bob, uh, if we wanted to follow you, follow your work, and and of course buy the book, uh, where could we do that? Let's start with Jenny, then Bob. <laughs> um, you can find me at jennywiseblack.com, J-E-N-N-Y-W-I-S-E-B-L-A-C-K.com and all the things that we're working on um, through there, including our book, which is available at, on Amazon. Awesome. Yeah, Bob. Awesome. Yeah, you can search the book, Our Digital Soul on Amazon, also ourdigitalsoul.com, a little landing page with some links and info there. You can follow me on Instagram at BW Hutchins, Twitter, Bob Hutchins, but you can, you can, um, you can Google me and find me and reach out to me. I love to hear from people, love to have questions and uh, hopefully go out and get the book and review it. We want to get the word out and just have this conversation. This is the conversation we want people to have. And Bob, what's your Twitter handle? Cause you're on the it's, two. Yeah. Bob Hutchins is B-O-B-H-U-T-C-H-I-N-S all one word. Awesome. Thank you guys so much Thank for coming so on. Much. This was Thank such you guys. That was really, really um, just so kind of y'all to have us. And thank yeah, you for absolutely. your questions and your undivided attention. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. We, we had to like keep our phones down for what was it, like a little bit over an hour. <laughs> you did it. You did it. <laughs> it right, was a great hour. <laughs> yeah, it was, man. It was really worth it. All thank right. you All so right, much, guys. guys. All right. Take care, guys. Talk to you guys okay. soon. All, All right. right. That was awesome. 
And uh, by the way, uh, I know I say this a lot, like time flew. It did. But I'm really surprised this time. I know. I was ready for another 30 minutes. But <laughs> anyway, uh, everyone, if you want to follow us, you can follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. And on Twitter, we're at Seize underscore podcast. Like, subscribe. Hit, hit the, the bell, bell on YouTube. YouTube. And again, thank you so much for watching and see you next time. Oh, 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 oh,